0: This is the podcast for God's Honest Truth. These are stories that are told by members of First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Each time we get together, we have a theme, and the members of our church tell stories based around that theme. I hope you enjoy. Well, good evening. How's everybody doing? It's good to see you here tonight i'm glad that you come out for our god's honest truth storytelling event so tonight we are doing stories hanging on by a thread stories of survival uh most of you have been here before i know you've probably come to hear these stories i'm glad that uh you've come back if this is your first time here the reason why we do these is because uh, we are a large congregation and we don't often get to really know each other in deep and meaningful ways uh, outside of church um, or we have these small little friend groups and this is an opportunity for us to share with each other to connect with each other over these stories and so this is why we do these stories every quarter or so uh, to try to get to know each other just a little bit better so uh, tonight we have, well, we had four storytellers. Mario Alberico actually uh, was in the hospital this morning, so he couldn't be here tonight. Uh, his story is one that you will probably hear at some point in the future, but um, one of the things that uh, that Mario deals with, he grew up uh, with and when he was 17 got Ewing sarcoma which if you know about this very rare type of cancer only about a thousand people a year get it but if you get it it's generally fatal and uh, when he was 17 they uh, they basically radiated him he's one of the few people who survived it and they had a brand new treatment he got through this was in the 70s and and so he's been dealing with some of the after effects of that and that is what he was dealing with this morning, so unfortunately he can't be here tonight. However, what's kind of really neat about this is that I have an opportunity to do something tonight after we hear from our three storytellers, um, and I've I've been doing something in the background for a little while now, and uh, you'll have an opportunity to hear that this evening. So, you know, we will certainly lift up Mario in our prayers, we should, he certainly needs it. He will come back and he will tell his story at some point, uh, but for tonight, we will have our three. And so this evening, I would like you to welcome Liz Moses to the stage, and her story is called Going It Alone, would you welcome her up, please?
1: Hi everyone, uh, I wasn't expecting so many people, <laughs> um, so my name is Liz and I grew up in the Chicago area and uh, I'm just going to talk briefly about um, my ch- very briefly about my childhood just to give you some context. Um, I kind of came into a, a pretty crazy environment. Um, there was a lot of uh, problem drinking. Um, my parents were divorced when I was very young, and my mom was remarried several times. and um, like what happens when there's problem drinking in a family, it's kind of a family disease, and you know, people are attracted to that kind of chaos and So everyone that my mother married was a problem drinker, and we lost um, my stepfather to a very tragic alcohol-related death when I was young. And um, so, you know, I kind of started my life um, feeling like a real outsider everywhere, even in my family. I mean, I used to have these thoughts when I was um, driving in the car with my family, I'd be in the back seat thinking, what if these aren't my parents, you know? What, what if there's other parents out there looking for me? <laughs> and it wasn't that I didn't want to be with my parents, but it just kind of felt like I didn't belong there, like I didn't belong anywhere. And we moved a lot. Um, by the time I was 18, we had moved 25 times. And um, so my um, early childhood was a lot of moves. I, you know, had to be a quick study of how to fit into a group. Sometimes it was hit or miss. Um, and so I would say that I was really seeking for something. And you know, it was interesting. Um, Alex's sermon this Sunday really kind of hit me because um, I think that when you feel as disconnected as I did, you don't even know that you're seeking for something or what you're seeking for. But you, I definitely um, I definitely connected to going to church and I went to a lot of churches, <laughs> um, tried a lot of different churches uh, just because that was what was presented to me. And then I had friends that did Awanas and did this Pioneer Girls with a Methodist Church, and you know, so I did all of these church-related things, and uh, one of the things that I realized along the way was that, I'm watching the time, that um, everyone was saying, you know, this is, this is the only way to believe, you know, and I just thought it was kind of funny, because I, I wanted to say, you know, I've been here, 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 and you all say that, and you cannot all be right, you know. <laughs> so. Um, so I started to kind of get my own idea of what felt like God was present in my life, and um, I just kept searching for that. Um, and, you know, being uh, from a very displaced background, um, it was really easy to get distracted from that search and uh, start looking for it in other things. Um, my uh, because my parents were divorced and we moved so many times, all I ever really wanted was a whole family. I wanted to feel like I became, I, bec- I you know, was a part of a whole family. So that was my big dream: was that I was going to grow up and marry the man of my dreams and have a wonderful family and keep that family together. At you know, and and that I was going to throw my life into it, and um, which I did. I started very early. I got married at the age of 18. I was pregnant with my first child. Um, and um, without realizing it, I really made my marriage my God. You know, that was, that was the, the most important thing to me. So keeping that together, I mean, I wasn't going to let go of that. And um, the marriage was not good. I didn't have role models. I didn't know, you know, I didn't have a good role model to pick a good life partner. I didn't have a good role model to show how to make a cohesive family. So I just kind of had to figure this out as I went along. And um, the father of my, I have four children, the father of my children um, is really a, a good man at heart. He really is, um, but also a problem drinker. And um living this life with him that included just sometimes seedy people coming into our home and a lot of um, drinking and a lot of anger and a lot of just really ugly things happening in our home and I was trying so hard to make um, to make a happy home for my children so. I just felt like I was kind of living this double life trying to manage the marriage and then manage the children. Um, my oldest son is physically disabled, and caring for him was extremely rigorous and took a lot of time. Um, so my second child, my daughter, my second child, uh, there's like a ten year span between my second child and my my third child and um, When I became pregnant with my third child, she was pretty upset because she felt like she was already sharing enough with her older brother. (laughs) And um, so just all of the um, chaos that we were living in and then trying to live with a handicapped child and make life as normal as possible um, just, just became such a difficult thing for the whole family to bear, and when I had that the third baby, we actually planned it because um, you know we felt like we were actually getting closer, we felt like you know we were we were older, we were you know let's do this, let's have this baby you know and enjoy this baby and and then I ended up getting a surprise, and that was the fourth baby and <laughs> After that, um, things started to fall apart really fast. My, um, my ex-husband started to drink a lot more, started to go out of the house and have extracurricular drinking and other things. And um, my second daughter was extremely sensitive to everything in life. You know, she paid attention to what was going on. She, From the time she was very little, from the time she was three, I remember her being moved to tears by art, you know, um, by artistic uh, uh, things. And, and, you know, that was unusual for a little girl like that. But along with that comes a deep sensitivity. And so she was very sensitive to everything that was going on in the house. And um, she had been going uh, to therapy because she was depressed. and. Um, one night, she decided to take all of a bottle of aspirin, and um, she didn't eat very many of them before she started choking on them, and then she came and told me, and I wanted to take her right to the hospital. And my, um, her father was afraid of having her hospitalized and having her uh, be exposed to whatever might be in the hospital, to which I was thinking, well, she's exposed to this here. You know, <laughs> it couldn't be any worse. But um, I was kind of always going along with what he said. I was kind of afraid of um, his anger. And um, so we didn't go to the hospital. And um, I got up the next day. Uh, she, I had her sleep with us in, in bed and uh, watched her all night long. And, and then I took her to... Um, to her I called her counselor and got an appointment with her counselor in the morning and her dad got in the car and drove off on his week-long business trip you know and I was just kind of stunned by it you know and I spent the I had spent the whole day like trying to get her an appointment get her to the appointment get her home and by the time I got home the tension of dealing with all of this was it just... It drove me to that edge just before you hit your knees. That edge where if you hit your knees, you're gonna let go and God's gonna take over. But if you're a control freak like me, you stay there and you cling to it because you're not ready to let go. And um, it was like five o'clock at night and my, I had two little babies, one on either knee. Just like hanging. I just remember their both their hands, you know, hands on this knee, hands on this knee, and they're staring at me in the face and they're screaming and crying in my face. And I don't know why they're screaming and crying because I'm just looking at the window and I don't know what was like outside. Was it dark? Was it dreary? Was it sunny? Was it raining? All I saw was the smudges of fingerprints on the window and I just felt so much despair and so much just complete despair. And I, I couldn't, I could not move myself to make dinner, which was supposed to be on the table and it wasn't even a prayer at that point. So um, at that moment, this, this wave washed over me and it was like God came into my life and I realized that I, I am going this alone, that, that the partner that I'm listening to got in his car and left, you know? And, you know, that I was going to have to figure something out. And that night, I put my daughter in bed with me again, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and she wasn't there. And she was okay. I found her, you know, reading a book in another room. And, but the, the desperation, again, that anything could have happened. Like, I can't keep her safe. And that's when I knew, you know, I had to put her into a hospital. And I had to, I had to be strong. I had to stand up and be strong in my marriage and say, this is what I decided. You weren't even here, you know. Um, I think that that was the beginning of the end of my marriage, but I also think it was the beginning of the end of me um, seeking for God in a different place. And, you know, I was really struck by what Alex uh, talked about this Sunday about, um, you know, um, the point of being a Christian is to become one with God to be closer to God and um, you know that that became that became my path you know and especially uh, for this family that I brought into the world I'm responsible for that you know and so I wanted to provide everything I could for them and, and give them a, a more centered life um, I learned a lot about Standing up and doing this, and sharing who I am from a fellowship that I joined uh, to for support, and um, one of the prayers that they said in 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 the literature that I repeated every day is what got me through it. And it goes, uh, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me, to build in me, and to do with me as thou wilt. Take away my difficulties that victory over them would bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen.
0: All right. <clears throat> so. Um, This next story that we have, and thank you very much for for sharing in the way that you did. This next story that we have coming up, um, originally I had asked Lisa's father to do this and uh, Lisa's father is Gail, and, uh, and he said, you know, I don't think I'm the right person to do this, uh, but I would like you to talk to Lisa, and Lisa was kind enough to be willing to tell this story, and I hope that, uh, I hope that you will enjoy it. If you all know Gail, he's here. He does connections for our church. He does so many wonderful things, and Lisa is just as wonderful as he is, so please welcome her up to the stage.
2: Well, I hate to follow Liz, that was an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. So, as Alex said, my name is Lisa Brockman and I've probably been coming to church here, I don't know, five years, maybe longer. Okay, and I'm here to tell a story about my family. <clears throat> my mom is an amazing woman. She's an accomplished watercolor painter she spent 40 years as an educator and an administrator of a large high school here in District 211. She uh, has lived all over the country. She traveled the world. She's a vivacious friend, a wonderful mother, and most of all, she is so in love with my dad. They, um, they truly have a fairy tale marriage, which is wonderful. But once my mom started to lose her memory and she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, this wonderful woman that I knew started to change. Over the years, uh, she became more hostile to her loving husband of 58 years. Um, She no longer knew me or my sister or her grandchildren. Um, Sometimes she knew my dad, but not always. And he really wanted to keep her at home. Her behavior became really erratic. Sometimes she would sleep two hours a night and then be up the whole next day. Sometimes she would sleep 36 hours and then be awake for 36 hours. Um, Toileting became difficult, and showering was a battle. And still, my dad wanted to keep her at home. For nine months, my mother refused to eat table food. She would only eat chocolate milkshakes. So we made a lot of chocolate milkshakes. And we would doctor them up with protein powder. And we'd cut up red peppers and grind them up and put them in there. And we'd crush her medication and put it in there. And then we would beg for hours for her to drink the chocolate milkshake. She lost about 30 pounds and they put her in the hospice program Um, and still my dad wanted to keep her at home. So we did. So we emptied her wallet and we took away her car keys and we put a no soliciting sign on the front door and we baby proofed the house and we put a shutoff valve on the gas stove. And we put sleigh bells on the bedroom door so she couldn't like get out at night and we wouldn't know. She stopped going to art class. We stopped bringing her here here to church. Um, We stopped bringing her to friends' houses. Um, The last time I took my mom to a doctor's appointment, she tried to get out of the car as we were going down the highway. So as you can imagine, this was just an incredibly difficult experience for our family, Um, especially for my dad. You know, he's in his 80s. So this is a really challenging thing to face. When I left my job, um, I spent the next six months helping my dad care for my mom at home. um, And I was happy to do it. I certainly didn't want him doing all that caregiving on his own. Sometimes I would come and just sit at the kitchen table and give him moral support. Every time I came over, I would send him out the door to go to the grocery store, go to the gym, or go to the library, just to get out of the house to have a break. And every couple of weeks, maybe every month or so, I would stay with my mom while my dad would go visit his brother in Michigan. And by this point, my mom's behavior was pretty unpredictable. And it was really terrifying to be responsible for her on my own. Um, I remember those visits as being just terrifying and stressful. Um, And still my dad wanted to keep her at home. Caring for someone with Alzheimer's is just a gut-wrenching experience. If you haven't lived through it, it's hard to appreciate the emotional toll of the loss and the burden of the caregiving for someone who is so unpredictable. First, there's a loss of clarity. You get the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and you have no idea how quickly or slowly it's going to progress. You don't know how well your loved one will be functioning, so you can't really plan for the future. You don't know if they'll live a year or if they'll live a decade. There's also so many unanswered questions. So you think, oh, well, can they stay at home? And, you know, can the spouse be the primary caregiver? And can they handle the emotional and physical toll of the caregiving? And will they tell us if they can't? And should we hire some staff? And who's gonna do that? And how do we know if they're any good? who's gonna pay for that and what do you do when they quit when you really need them? How will you know when your loved one needs to go to a care facility? How will you pay for that? How do you know that the staff at the care facility will always treat your loved one with dignity and kindness? How do you know if your loved one should take some of the drugs that are on the market for Alzheimer's. How long should they take them? How do you know if they're working or not? So many unanswered questions, and in truth, there are no answers, and you're just kind of feeling around in the dark. There's also a loss of emotional connection where your loved one is there in body, and yet it's like they're gone. And they may have personality changes. They may lose recognition and not know you anymore. They lose the ability to think. They lose the ability to communicate. They lose the ability to make simple choices. Sometimes people with Alzheimer's get very angry, and sometimes they can be violent. And as your loved one fades away, there's this new relationship where you're like a kind stranger or a benevolent visitor, and they really don't know who you are. But they're still happy to see you. But you've just lost just your whole lifetime of connection. Someone with Alzheimer's might see the older spouse with the gray hair and the wrinkles, and they think, oh, that's my dad, or no, that's my granddad. Or wait, maybe that's someone else's granddad. Or they may not even have any recognition at all that there's a person sitting there talking to them. At that point, they're kind of lost in their own mind in this interior world, and it's like you can't access them anymore. There's a lot of grief, uh, it's really depressing to watch your loved one slip away. It's so hard to watch. And every interaction is this reminder that your loved one is not going to laugh at your very funny joke that you just told. And they can't watch, it, watch the news with you anymore. And they can't read a book. And they're not going to have a meaningful conversation with anyone ever again. and they. They can't reminisce with you about your life and all of your memories. So you feel a lot of grief, and you grieve all through the process as you're watching this loss, and then you grieve a second time when they die. There's also a battle with reality. Someone with Alzheimer's, they may not remember what's happened or they might remember something really vividly, but it happened a long time ago, or they literally seem to have no memories at all. They can hallucinate and have conversations with people who aren't there. They can ask the same question a hundred times in one day and you patiently answer it over and over again. There's a distorted reality where you say, "Okay, time to take your morning medicine. And they say, I can't take those pills. Those are poison. And there's distorted reality when you say, time to take a shower. And they say, oh, I just took a shower, thanks. Or you say, "Okay, 10 o'clock, bedtime. And they say, bedtime for you maybe, but I'm not going anywhere. Arguing with someone who has this distorted reality is exhausting. Arguing about morning pills can take hours. Arguing about showers can last for days. A simple request to put on a clean shirt can trigger a really ugly outburst. You start to lower your expectations (laughs) because it is hard to argue with someone who has a different reality than you do. Also, your loved one can be very angry and lash out at you. But you love them, so you're trying to be really patient and um, you know, kind and supportive. And they can lash out over and over again. And you are just left to try your best minute after minute, day after day, week after week, month after month. And it's really hard. It's hard to find the strength for that. There is a loss of a trusted partner. Often the spouses are older. They've been with their, their husband or their wife for decades. Right? They rely on this person. They stand by their side. They help them through everything in life. <clears throat> and now your spouse cannot help you at all. They can't put something on the shopping list for you or get their own drink of water. You, have, you are left to make all of the decisions and the one person that you trusted most to help you is no longer there for you. And this happens as you're getting older and you're facing your own life transitions and your own health challenges. And just as you're taking on what is indisputably the hardest role you will ever have, you need your loving spouse by your side more than ever. and they are not there for you. In fact, they are an incredible burden. But you love your spouse, and you don't want to complain about that because you love your spouse, and they're making you crazy. But you love your spouse, and you don't want to put them in a home. And that is the double bind of caring for someone who has Alzheimer's. I'm almost done. (laughs) There's a fear for their safety and a fear for your safety. You fear for their safety because they cannot be left alone. They can't take medication on their own. Um, They can wander. They can burn the house down they can go into the garage in the middle of the night in the polar vortex and you wouldn't know that they're locked in the garage. You also become paranoid about your own safety. You are the primary caregiver. You may be the only person left on the planet that your loved one still recognizes and knows a little bit, sometimes and maybe they listen to you sometimes. You're not easy to replace. It's not like you're gonna call a friend and they can pop over and babysit. This is, this is not for casual caregiving. This is a huge, dedicated commitment. And finally, there is the unique burden of caregiving for someone who is arguably losing their mind. You become an activities director, it's up to you to come up with activities to keep your loved one engaged and challenged and happy for four hours a day or 10 hours a day or 18 hours a day. So you might look at magazines and look for pictures of smiling faces or puppies, maybe draw pictures Um, or If your loved one really likes the Sound of Music movie, you might watch that several times a day for months on end. That used to be my father's favorite movie. (laughs) And if you don't pick the activities, they will pick the activities for you. So they might empty all of your kitchen drawers into a big pile in the middle of the floor. Or they might put on five shirts and a dress over their outfit and refuse to take them off. Or they might put really sharp pencils in their pockets and then stab themselves with them. They might flush wet underwear down the toilet or break a lamp and then hide all the little pieces of glass from the light bulb all over the house while you're in the bathroom for just two minutes. They might shred a treasured family photo into confetti and then eat the spitballs. They might walk over to a table, pick up a vase, and walk to the window to break the window to escape. Your loved one might do all these things before 10 o'clock in the morning, or they might do them in the middle of the night when you fall asleep and think that they're sleeping too. I want to tell you how this story ends for my family. Um, Last year, I was going to London to visit my sister and my dad's two housekeepers that we really rely on we're going back to Lithuania for their national anniversary of their independence. And so we arranged a one week respite stay for my mom at a memory care facility. And we planned to have her there for a week and then bring her home at the end of the week and continue caring for her at home. So I went off to London, my dad went to Michigan to see his brother, and the caregivers went to Lithuania. And at the end of the week, when we came back, my mom really surprised us. She had adjusted to her life there. And although she was so unhappy at home, she was happy there. And we waited a week, and she started eating full meals with silverware and linen napkins. (laughs) And she gained back the 30 pounds, and she graduated from hospice and she hugs the staff and she dances in the hallways when my dad and I go to visit her. So after much hardship, there is a slightly happy ending for my family. And for that, I am very grateful and I thank God. But I want to leave you with this thought. If you know someone who's caring for an Alzheimer's patient, please treat them like they are living through a nightmare of loss and grief. Don't minimize their trauma. Don't try to look for a silver lining. Don't judge them if they put their loved one in a care facility. Just support them as much as you can, for they are truly hanging on by a threat. Thank you.
0: So Gail and Joyce, they used to sit in the back, right where, near where Sue is, back there. And um, what's interesting is when she was coming to church, when she could come to church, and I knew that she had uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, and she would come back and every, every, after every service, she'd come back and she'd say, you know, you are the best pastor we've ever had. <laughs> Or she said that was the best sermon I ever heard. And I was like, that's good, that's good. I really appreciate that. And she was just wonderful. And if you uh, haven't gotten a chance at some point, I think, uh, I hope at some point that we can see some more of her art, because she was an amazing artist, just beautiful watercolors. And, um, and so just, it's amazing what people can bring to the world, and she is just a delight. I just want you to know, your mother was is a delightful person. All right, so our final story of the night, final storyteller, is Rich. He's going to come up, and uh, if you'd welcome up, his story is named Greta. Welcome to the stage, please.
3: My name is Rich. <laughs> Richard Levinsky. I, uh, for, since 1975 until about 10 years ago, I had the honor of being on the medical staff of uh, a large teaching and research hospital on the south side of Chicago, Michael Reese Hospital. While I was there, I met a woman that I think was an amazing lady. I'm going to call her only by her first name, because uh, Greta, because I'm going to tell you some medical facts about her, and it's illegal to uh, spread medical stories and connect people to them. I first met Greta 30, 35 years ago. She came to see me uh, in my capacity as a cardiologist there. Uh, she was complaining of chest pain uh, progressive chest pain whenever she walked or exerted herself. Characteristic story of coronary artery disease, the disease that causes heart attacks, et cetera. Um, I evaluated her, did an angiogram on her, and sure enough, she had severe diffuse coronary disease in all three of her coronary vessels that, vessels that feed the heart. She needed heart surgery, so after her procedure, I went to see her in her, in her uh, hospital room. I sat down, and I told her the diagnosis, and I explained to her that she was going to need surgery. Um, at this point, I'd like to go back in time and tell you some things I learned about Greta later on in the story. Uh, I didn't know them at the time. I told her her diagnosis. Uh, Greta was uh, a Jewish lady. She was born, I'm not sure where, but I think she was born either in Germany or Austria someplace. And in her early teens, somewhere between 12 and 13, uh, she was arrested, placed in a concentration camp and she began to undergo multiple experimental operations uh, designed to cause her uh, uh, to be unable to have children, to be sterilized. The idea was to find an easy, cheap method of sterilizing undesirable women so they could continue to be of use to the Reich. but. Uh, not contaminate uh, the Aryan bloodstream. Um, She was imprisoned by the Nazis in this manner for a little uh, less than four years. When she was rescued by the uh, allies, she had to be hospitalized for two or three months to recover. She was then released and after a while was able to immigrate to the United States and settled in Hyde Park, a south side neighborhood of Chicago. Uh, Greta was an excellent artist, and she supported herself by painting and selling those paintings uh, on consignment at various stores in the Hyde Park neighborhood and in the Hyde Park Art Fair, and- uh, places like that, after several years of this, she met and married a gentleman I never had the honor to meet. I think he was uh, um, uh, also a concentration camp survivor uh, by by uh, hints Greta left for me but i'm I'm not sure of that. Um, she had several years of very happy life with him uh, continuing to improve their financial situation by selling her artist, artistry. When he began to show signs of early onset dementia, Uh, Greta then uh, basically uh, devoted her life to being a caregiver to her husband Uh, the last few years Um, She was responsible for diapering him, for bathing him, for uh, feeding him, Um, she devoted herself to this and when he finally passed away, after 12 years of this, finally passed away, that's not nice to say finally passed away, she loved him, and when when he passed away Um, She realized she had been getting chest pains uh, during this activity and worsening chest pains. But she also had developed a retinal disease, uh, macular degeneration, which uh, uh, just before uh, her husband passed away uh, caused her to become completely blind. Not quite completely. She could determine light and dark, but she couldn't see anything. So when I saw her, she was blind, and she had serious coronary heart disease. I told her that she needed surgery, and almost immediately she she lost it. She had a complete nervous breakdown, became manic, um, interspersed with periods of being completely incommunicative. The heart surgeon of course said I I can't operate on the lady, she's not even capable of of, um, consenting legally to surgery. I referred the lady to uh, one of my favorite psychiatrists at the time, who treated her as an inpatient for only about a week and then began outpatient treatments And he called me three weeks, maybe three and a half weeks later, and said, Rich, Greta's ready for surgery, which shocked the heck out of me, to be honest with you. I thought it would take months, if not years, to recuperate. The psychiatrist told me several things. He told me, uh, number one, the reason she lost it when I told her she needed surgery was that Most of the operations she underwent in a concentration camp were without benefit of anesthesia. Why waste money on that, you know? She was, um, she she told the psychiatrist that she lost count of her operations at 13. And the psychiatrist told me that uh, she really probably, not only lost count, but entered that same stage that I saw her in when I told her she needed surgery. And she was in that when she was rescued, which was probably why it took her several months in a hospital before she could be released. She had surgery. She did actually better than average. She recuperated a little quicker than I thought um, I began to see her uh, postoperatively uh, as an outpatient. About four months after her surgery, she asked me the only personal question she ever asked me. She said, Doctor, have you any children? And I said, Yes, I, I, I have uh, three lovely children. She says, Your wife is a very lucky lady now being a physician and therefore egotistical as everybody knows i thought she was talking about how lucky she was to be married to me but no no that, that that wasn't the case two months later when she got her her next appointment she presented me with a gift of a sculpture she made herself i said gretta you can't see how do you uh, be a sculpture. She says, Doctor, I, I can't see with my eyes anymore, but I can see with my hands. And she continued to support herself selling sculpture. She presented me with this. She told me, that's for your wife and you too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, about a month after that, I was in Hyde Park uh, in a store, and I saw a, a catalog of, of Greta's art, as this was one of the stores. She sold things in, on consignment. And I looked through the catalog and realized that maybe a quarter of her works were mothers with children, or not so nice, uh, women with holes in their pelvis or empty bellies. Uh, Later she told me her only regret in life was that uh, her her ability to become a mother was taken from her at an early age. She lived uh, another 10 years or so after her heart surgery and I saw her two, three times a year for those 10 years. And she seemed very happy and contented I always thought, uh, you know, this is supposed to be hanging by a thread. She hung by multiple threads. Um, But she was, I thought, a remarkable lady. I think more so now that I know a little more about caring for uh, uh, such people. Thank you for that. That's all my story.
0: So um, if you do have the opportunity, please say thank you to everybody, and we have uh, one more of these coming up. It'll be in May, and that'll be the last one until we come back again in the fall. So we got one coming up soon, and um, I believe that it's, it's stories about childhood, how children have inspired us in our lives. I don't remember the exact name of the theme, but I hope that you can be there for that. So if you get a chance, get an opportunity, go talk to them. Thank you all very much for being here tonight. I appreciate that you can be a part of it. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.